Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program, as Thanksgiving approaches, fears of a COVID explosion ramp up on a day when Ontario reports the highest number of new cases yet. And a new report details what went wrong in long-term care homes and what's needed to withstand a second wave of COVID-19. Prime Minister and Ontario Premier pour more than half a billion dollars into the production of electric vehicles. How does that fit into the pandemic recovery plan? Federal Minister of Innovation will be here to discuss that and efforts to ramp up the production of personal protective equipment in this country. And who should pay for the economic recovery? Could that be the next test of the NDP's support for the minority government? Our party strategists will weigh in on that. But we'll begin tonight with growing concerns about the spread of COVID-19. There were 1,078 new cases reported in Quebec today, 797 new cases reported in Ontario. That's a record high since the pandemic began for the province and as Ontario ramps up testing. I'm proud that uh, we set another record yesterday at 48,300 tests. We're getting close to 50,000 tests. And just to put that into perspective, we're 38% of the population. We're testing 52% of the, the people. But uh, we're going to continue training up the, the contact tracers and having people come on board. We're going to be hiring hundreds and hundreds of contact tracers. So we welcome anyone. If you want to be a contact tracer, by all means, go on the provincial uh, website. And uh, it's a great, uh, great job. And in the province of Quebec, an appeal from the premier there echoing uh, the other provinces as well to limit Thanksgiving gatherings and visits this weekend. Right now. I worry about the increase in the number of hospitalizations. If we want to keep on uh, giving the right treatment at the right moment to all Quebecers, we need to stop uh, the uh, contamination. And also growing concern about new COVID-19 outbreaks in long-term care homes. A report today from Ontario's patient ombudsman found that complaints rose by 370% between March 1st and June 30th. In essence, the report concludes patients and families and caregivers were largely left to fend for themselves. Nearly 2,000 residents of long-term care homes have died during the pandemic in Ontario. That's 65% of Ontario's COVID-19 deaths. The report recommends that each long-term care home have a partner organization to prevent and respond to any COVID-19 outbreaks. That homes not cancel visits completely, but allow a limited number of caregiver visitors. Better communication with families and enhanced whistleblower protections are also part of the recommendations. Laura Tamblin-Watts is the CEO of CanAge, a national seniors advocacy organization. Uh, Ms. Tamblin-Watts, first of all, uh, thanks for taking time to speak with me. Good to see you again. My pleasure. What is your reaction to these findings and the recommendations uh, from the Patients Ombudsman in Ontario? What stood out for you? Well, they're not surprising. I mean, it does seem a fairly accurate you know, series of recommendations that have come out of what we kind of expected we would hear. We heard about the lack of communication, we heard about the worries of staffing. You know, we heard also about the terrible situation around infection control. And in the end, one of the things that really stood out, though, 
was that it was staff who were also reaching out to the patient ombudsman. Now, it's not really set up for that. So one of the recommendations says that there should be a whistleblower provision in the legislation so staff can safely reach out. So all in all, kind of what you would expect, but a little bit unusual to see that they're saying that staff needs a place to talk about these things safely. I think it's a pretty, it's a fairly damning indictment, isn't it, of the, of the way the system was operating. And, the, and what stood out for me, too, was just the, the, the lack of preparation. All of these things that seemed to happen, nobody seemed quite sure what to do or where to find help or uh, how to deal with families or, uh, or some of these other key things you would think would be top of mind when a pandemic hits. No, it was a scramble. There's no question about it. And I mean, we know that the associations were trying as hard as they can to get the information out, but there wasn't that communication with government. And one of the interesting things that it said was, you know, there's a focus, of course, on getting things to hospital. One of the parts of the report said, you know, because of that, we weren't ready in long-term care. Well, Anyone in long-term care can tell you that they were crying into the wind to get the resources. Yes, it's true that we saw you know, challenges in hospitals overseas, but we knew, we knew that once it would come into our frailest frail in a closed setting, it would spread like wildfire. And that preparation didn't get used by the government of Ontario. And in fact, it was different in other provinces and we had some different outcomes there. Uh, tell me about that. I mean, could, could these findings and recommendations be applied to all other provinces or is that unfair? No, I, we can certainly see some of the key issues across this country. But one of the one of the exceptions to the rule was pointed out in this report, and that's how British Columbia responded to it. So they really had an early focus, really middle of March, where they started changing staffing putting prioritization of personal protective equipment into the long-term care home and increasing communication. So they did a much better job. And we can see that the death rate in BC was about a tenth of what it was in Ontario and Quebec. And Ontario and Quebec did not respond with many of those needed measures well until the third week of April, five, six weeks after. Every one of those weeks was an increase in the curve. And so certainly we could have done a better job. And this report says it. Okay, we, we saw frantic efforts uh, to deal with the tragic outbreaks in these long-term care homes during the first wave of the pandemic. Uh, we saw the Army called in, in fact, in some places to help. Are you satisfied that the lessons learned from that experience and have been laid out in this report from the patient's ombudsman, that, that some of those things are being put into practice even now as we get hit by a second wave? I think that we know what's wrong but I don't think that we've taken the steps to make them right. So we know about staffing challenges in long-term care. That's been a well-known problem. But we had a little bit of extra support over the summer because we had nurses and doctors who were in school, students, learning, come and help out, as well as, in some cases, the military help out. Well, the military's gone, and so are the students. And the staff that are left across this country who've been working 24-7 particularly at homes that have had outbreaks, are exhausted. And they often have children at home too and have these extra rules about school-aged children. So I think we're going to see a staffing crisis increase, not decrease, as fall and winter comes. Hmm. The good news is rapid testing is being approved. And I think that once we get rapid testing for everybody who goes in and out of long-term care homes, that will help, though. We're seeing a spike in some cases now in long-term care homes in different parts of the country. So I guess... I mean, how concerned are you that this is going to be bad again in long-term care homes in a second wave, or you think we'll do better? I mean, you've sort of touched on it, but let's drill down a bit. 
I think that CanAge, our organization, is really singing the same song as others. We're very worried about a second wave and maybe a third. And often the spotlight wavers away from seniors. And so we're particularly concerned with this sort of new sense that, well, maybe it's okay that the older people who are in long-term care home actually do get infected and die. That sounds dire, mm -hmm. but it's true. We're very focused on back to school and for good reason. But let's not forget that we are nowhere near solving the issue in long-term care. So as attention wavers, so does funding. And we know what we need to do. We need to change how long-term care is staffed. We know we need to change how long-term care is prioritized. And we know that we need to make significant infrastructure investments. Some of those investments are being made across this country but lots of them aren't. And we're very worried that unless people start actually moving quickly in government to address our long known concerns, we'll have significantly greater loss of life. All right, uh, we'll hope that doesn't happen as we uh, watch a second wave unfold here across the country. Laura Tamblin-Watts, uh, thanks for your time. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. The federal and Ontario governments have teamed up to provide an investment of nearly $600 million to help Ford Canada make its Oakville plant the company's top electric vehicle factory in North America. This is just one of the first steps to build a next-generation auto industry. And we have the resources to do that. From aluminum from Quebec to nickel from Ontario, this investment will make a huge impact throughout the supply chain, including the many many auto parts suppliers throughout the regions. We're all in and we put our money where our mouth is with an investment of $295 million and there's a tremendous opportunity to, to grow this industry no matter if it's the auto sector or other sectors that we can start manufacturing electric items right here in Ontario. Well, the federal provincial investment helped save 3,000 jobs at the Ford plant. It's also a key part of the federal government's plan to transition to a greener economy to help reach a goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Navdeep Baines is Canada's Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry. And how about this? He's actually a former Ford employee. He is with me now. Uh, Minister Baines, it's good to talk to you again. Uh, where, where does this investment today put Canada in the international competition to meet a growing demand for electric vehicles? So the key point is uh, you're absolutely right. There is a growing demand for zero emission vehicles. Uh, if you look at Canada right now, there's about 136,000 vehicles on the road uh, that are referred to as ZEVs or zero emission vehicles. And that number is going to increase to 13.2 million uh, by 2030. So a significant increase. And uh, this positions Canada really well. This investment uh, by Ford is significant, $1.8 billion, the largest facility for their battery electric vehicles in North America. And the key element here is it also supports the transformation for our supply chain as well. Okay, we'll get into that a little bit. Does the federal investment, $295 million, does that include any job guarantees from Ford in return for that federal and provincial money? Yeah, the key element is, of course, maintaining and securing 5,400 jobs. And it's important to note, it's not only the direct jobs that are going to be supported by this, but the indirect jobs. So for every one person on the assembly line, there's seven to nine jobs that it supports. And I'm talking about dealerships here. I'm talking about suppliers here. So there's many, many other jobs that will benefit from this investment. What I'm talking about, though, is, is there anything built into this, this agreement 
that says if uh, Ford hits a rough patch, what does Ford have to do in return for this money? Does it guarantee those Canadian jobs because we've seen investments in other uh, companies uh, that the government has made and then jobs disappear shortly after? So what are the guarantees? Well, first of all, I think it's important to note that the market uh, for this product, these battery electric vehicles, is only going to increase. There's going to be more demand, more consumers uh, want these types of vehicles. So I'm optimistic that the, the market looks strong. But in terms of the job guarantees that you talk about, we've made sure that this investment secures these 5,400 jobs for the next 10 years. Okay, that's what I was looking for. Now, you talked about the spin-off effects, uh, the battery production piece. What effect uh, would this investment have on, for instance, Canadian mining companies? Well, this sends a very positive signal to our Canadian mining companies. It says you're part of our strategy, which we call Mines to Mobility. This is about leveraging Canada's strength in the mining sector, access to key uh, raw materials like uh, nickel, cobalt, uh, graphite, aluminum. These are essential ingredients that we need to build the batteries here. And if you look at the workforce that we have in Canada, which has been building vehicles for well over 100 years, we have a highly skilled workforce, we have access uh, to these raw materials, uh, and so that's a very strong value proposition for investments, and that's why Ford made such a significant investment in the Oakville facility. I know you talked about the estimates for uh, the growth in electric vehicle sales, but uh, they're still lagging despite the government incentives for, for buyers. There's a need for more charging stations, we know that. What's the plan to build more charging stations and, and is there a plan to provide more incentives to encourage those sales? Yeah, there's two key components to it. One is the infrastructure component. We absolutely need to invest in infrastructure and charging stations. And that is why in the last budget, we allocated $300 million for different types of infrastructure investments to support clean technologies, including charging stations for zero emission vehicles. But we also recognize that consumers need to have the right incentives as well. And we're very proud of the rebate program that we put in place, which has helped accelerate sales here in Canada. But it's important to note that the market investments, the capital investments made by the companies are reducing the cost as well for these vehicles. And because consumer demand is going up, that too will help complement the overall sales in the sector. It was noted today at the announcement that the Ontario government uh, cancelled incentives for electric vehicle uh, purchases. Uh, would you like the Premier of Ontario to reconsider that move since he's investing money to build these cars? I think it would be the prudent and smart uh, choice to, to make. It's, uh, in my opinion, that's the right path. You need to have a holistic approach. Uh, not only are we supporting the mining sector, we're supporting the manufacturing sector, but we need to focus on consumers as well by building the infrastructure and providing them with the rebates. All that combined, I think, creates really strong market conditions for these vehicles to be uh, made here in Canada and sold here in Canada. And ultimately, that creates jobs, but also helps us meet our climate change targets as well. Okay, well, I've got you. Um, I want to ask you about PPE. Uh, that's also uh, under your purview. We're sure. hitting a second wave of COVID-19 now. You're in charge of trying to get Canadian companies producing more uh, personal protective equipment. How's that going? Well, you have to realize we started virtually from scratch. Uh, in March, uh, when this pandemic really hit and uh, we took measures to keep people safe, uh, we were reliant on international suppliers for personal protective equipment. And we recognized that international demand was significant and our supply chains internationally were being strained. So we re ramped up and retooled our local supply base by you know, saying, look, we're going to call, uh, have a call to action. 
and ask businesses to step up. And over 6,500 businesses put up their hand and said, we will help retool and uh, rescale our facilities. And right now, I'm proud to say that over 1,000 companies are doing that. And it's really important to note that means we as a government have options. So for every dollar that we spend now on procurement for personal protective equipment, 50 cents is now going towards Canadian companies and Canadian solutions and a source locally. All right. Uh, good to hear. Uh, Navdeep Baines, thanks for your time tonight. appreciate it. Well, thanks very much for having me on. Well, the leader of the federal NDP is calling for a special tax on the companies that made big profits during the pandemic. It should not be everyday people that pay the price for the cost of this pandemic or the cost of the recovery. But those at the very top who have enjoyed massive profits should certainly pay their fair share. And if we invest in recovery, we'll re we will recover more revenue. Well, let's bring in our panel of party commentators now. I'm joined tonight by Mira Ahmad, a liberal commentator. Shakir Chambers is a conservative commentator. And Kiyavash Najafi is an NDP commentator. Good to see you all. Uh, welcome back this week. Mira, let me start with you. Jagmeet Singh, talking about a tax uh, on excess company profits, at least double the corporate tax rate to help pay for the cost of restarting the economy after the pandemic. He also wants a tax on the wealthiest Canadians who have a net worth more than $20 million. And the Liberal speech from the throne promised to tax extreme wealth. So how should we be prepared as a country to pay for the cost of the pandemic? Thanks, Peter. Look, uh, supporting the middle class has always been a priority for the Trudeau government. Um, you know, the prime minister has always been consistent in his commitment to standing up for the middle class. You know, one of the first things the prime minister and the liberal government did in 2015 was raise taxes on the wealthiest 1% so we could lower them for the middle class. Um, and the NDP and the Conservatives actually voted against that. So, you know, that's not going to change. Um, they're going to continue focusing on working together to continue to build a fairer and a more inclusive economy that works for all Canadians. Um, and this fall, actually, uh, the federal government released an update um, to Canada's COVID-19 economic uh, response plan, which will come soon and which is going to outline um, some economic and uh, fiscal positions, um, you know, providing some fiscal projections and setting out new measures that will um, be adapting right. to, uh, you know, the new reality oh, that okay. we're living through. All right, Shakira, uh, how, how should we be treated? Let's talk about those big companies that made big profits during the pandemic. How should we be treating those companies? And, and, and how do we rebuild the economy if it's not in part with new taxes on the wealthy? So I don't think it's about taxing, uh, increasing taxes. That's obviously not a position conservatives are going to support. The goal here is job creation, right? When you increase the amount of people that are in the workforce, you increase the tax base and you generate revenue from there. I'd, even, I'd say also a lot of the programs that are in place for this COVID response are not meant to be permanent programs, right? So ultimately that cost will come off the books and you can focus about on managing and the economic recovery and how you get back to a proper balance sheet. Uh, I'd also just point out, for, for Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, this is not a new promise. Uh, look at their 2019 platform. Mm. This is a very similar commitment they had in their platform. He's just reviving it now because he knows the Liberals need to use the NDP to prop them up. So let's try to get some leverage and move this forward. All right, Kiyavash, why does the NDP believe these companies who, look, many people turned to these companies during the pandemic and thought they were doing a great job of helping out, staying open, uh, providing groceries, providing whatever else it is they were providing, to help, I'm sorry, to help Canadians get by during the pandemic. Should they be punished for making money? I guess that's the, that's the question. It's not about punishment. It's about paying your fair share. Right? Um, 20 individuals in Canada have 
increased their wealth by $37 billion since the start of the, uh, of the pandemic. Good for them. Nothing against them. But this is a time that we should all chip in where we can uh, so that, uh, so that uh, we can have the kind of recovery and the kind of con- uh, country we want to have. Just about paying your fair share of taxes. All right. I mean, is this is this the new line in the sand, do you think, for the NDP, which has supported the government in the speech from the throne so far? Uh, the next big test might be when we get a uh, uh, we, we get a budget or, or a test of confidence on that. Is this uh, is this going to be the line in the sand on NDP support to keep uh, propping up a minority government? I think you've noticed uh, from the way that Jagmeet Singh has handled himself and, and his caucus in this uh, parliament. He is focused on getting results for people. And he has refused playing, you know, a game of chicken with the, with the prime minister. I've been really impressed with very um, thoughtful proposals that he's put in front of the government. And the initial reaction he's often received has been that, like, this is too much. This is not the right thing to do. It's expensive, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, he's managed to get... Uh, the results. And, and he's proven to be a very good negotiator. Um, the government, as you mentioned, okay. in the speech from the throne, did open the door to uh, looking at taxes. Uh, it is just fair to to think about how we're going to pay for this. Um, you know, like the problems we're facing do require money, and we have the money. We are a rich society. Right now, that money is concentrated uh, okay. in a very small group of wealthy individuals and the wealthiest companies. And if they pay their fair share of taxes, we can come through this crisis stronger together. All right. Mira, how far should we expect the Liberal government to go in, 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 in raise, look, governments raise taxes at their own peril? We've seen that. No one's been really happy about trying to do it in the last number of governments. With, and it's had uh, some very mixed results whenever anybody's tried, typically negative. So how, how far should we expect a Liberal government to go in, in you know, raising taxes to try and pay for the cost of the pandemic. I think, uh, you know, as the prime minister said in his address, we need to build back better in a fiscally and sustainable way. And emergency spending is required now to keep Canadians safe and healthy. That's the priority. And the government has made it clear that we have to do whatever it takes to fight this pandemic. And that means, you know, not having Canadians take on debt that the government can better shoulder, as he said, Um, two weeks ago. And it's also important, I think, to differentiate between regular government spending and uh, massive emergency spending, which can be locked in to ultra-low interest rates over a a longer period of time. Okay. Shakira, is there any way you can mount a a recovery uh, without raising taxes, at least on some portion of society? Well, listen, you can make the programs more targeted and more effective. As I said before, some of these programs are not meant to be permanent programs. And you still have both the NDP and the Liberals saying they want to have a universal basic income. They want universal pharmacare. Those are nice things, but they cost billions and billions of dollars, right? So you want to tax and you want to spend. I don't think that's the way forward. I think ultimately, again, at least it's about job creation. It's about increasing the tax base. When you look at what the liberals are actually faced with right now, I think no matter what they do, realistically speaking, they're not going to go far enough to appease the NDP. And anybody who's center-right or right is not going to appreciate tax uh, tax increases. So they're in a very tough position as far as how they manage this issue. But ultimately, as I said before, they need the support of the NDP to continue being in power. So we'll see how they juggle this moving forward. Uh, Kiyavash, let me switch gears here. We're, we're seeing COVID-19 infections spike now, a record number in Ontario today. High numbers again in Quebec. Still lots of concerns about the slow pace of 
testing and the lack of rapid tests available to Canadians. We're still at least a few weeks and up to, in some cases, three months away from getting these rapid tests and sending them across the country. Uh, what do you think the problem has been here with getting these tests out to Canadians uh, in a timely manner? Uh, it, it's hard to live in Ontario and not to think that it's the utter incompetence of the provincial government that we're experiencing right now. When it comes to reopening of the schools and child care, we experience that. With the testing, we're experiencing it. With the complete um, lack of confidence in the messaging from government, I mean, it took until today for Premier Ford to actually get the message out about Thanksgiving. Um, it is awful. It is awful. And it is really scary to live in this province and also across the river from Quebec and watch these two governments um, losing their backbone in actually taking action. You know, you've got the, the uh, mayor of Toronto and, and the public health uh, officials there saying that they need some form of a return to a, some form of a lockdown in order to be able to manage this situation. And Mr. Ford keeps saying that he needs more evidence. I don't know what evidence he needs. Does he need piling up on the streets before he takes action? Okay, let me move to Shakir. Shakir, uh, let me hear you on that in terms of, uh, I I suppose if you can, the delays in testing, but also do you sense there's an erosion in public trust now as we see in some cases, particularly Ontario, this conflict between some of the uh, key health officials and the politicians in terms of what to do next in wave two. Yeah, I think uh, the the municipal government in Toronto and the provincial government are kind of having a a public spat. Uh, You have the Toronto health official calling for a lockdown. You have the premier saying it's not time to go into a lockdown. And I think there's a lot of evidence to say that it's not time to go into a lockdown. Listen, at the end of the day, you don't want to be the person to put your finger on the scale to put a lot of these businesses, uh, to put a lot of these uh, entrepreneurs out of business. Small businesses are hurting right now. To go through another month, I don't know, two months of a lockdown where they have no profits, no revenue, that could be crippling for the economy. The COVID-19 is a major health concern. Shakir, I maybe totally it's agree. Time to the the hang, hang, hang on, Kibas. Let, 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 let uh, Shakir finish. <laughs> but no, listen, economically, economically as well, closing down small businesses is going to be a major, major long-term impact as well that we might not recover from from a very, very long time. So I think Premier Ford is trying to walk that fine line. I think he's doing a good job walking that fine line. And ultimately, he's getting information from health officials, the top health officials in the province. They're saying it's not necessary. Why would you go against that advice? All right. Uh, you know, this has implications, uh, Mira, for a federal government as well. If provinces go back into uh, into big lockdowns, I suppose we're back to talking about uh, federal supports for people who are going to be out of work again, more people than are out of work now. Uh, how do you see the federal government's role in this in terms of watching these two provinces in particular with spiking cases and lots of concern about where we go next? Yeah, so look, Peter, I think, you know, testing has been the number one priority for the government since this spring, and it's absolutely imperative that we get it right, that we get Canadians' results as quickly as possible in order to keep fighting through this crisis, especially now where we're living through a second wave where, um, you know, the numbers are rising again. Testing and tracing is more important than ever. Um, And the government has approved uh, rapid testing in the past few days. They've approved two new tests, uh, the first to receive approval for use. But But, it's going to take Yeah, we're still not going to get them for at least a couple of weeks and in some cases the end of the year before we get some of these rapid tests. Yeah, I think, you know, Canadian health experts are the ones who ultimately make these decisions. Those are, you know, scientists, doctors and the public servants at Health Canada who are working to ensure that these tests are safe and effective before we move ahead with them. This is not a political issue. It's a health issue. And 
Um, when I hear conservatives say that we're we're not approving uh, a test quickly enough, it's it's actually a little concerning. You know, are they saying that politicians should be making these decisions and not the scientists and the health experts? All right, experts? Let, let me let me let's get a, a comment from you on that, Shakir, and then we'll finish with Kiyavash. So I think in terms of the speed, I think relative to other countries, European countries, those in the U.S. that are, have these tests already deployed on the ground, we are behind. We are lagging behind. I think that's the impetus that the conservatives are trying to move forward. Why are we so delayed in having these rapid tests on the ground? There are a lot of industries that in Canada that can benefit from having these tests right now to test their employees, whether it's tourism, whether it's film and TV. I think that's the problem. Why is Canada okay. so slow to get these tests deployed and what's the plan to actually get them to the province? All right, I got a quick uh, time for 20 second finishing comment from you, Ash. What's the problem here? I, I think the problem is lack of leadership and lack of foresight. I completely agree with Shakir, and I understand the, the concerns of small business owners and people who work in or small businesses of uh, the impact of a lockdown or, or any sort of like return to some sort of restriction. But this is exactly why we need to have the wealthiest individuals and corporations. The winners of this pandemic have to pay their fair share so that the rest of us can have uh, the, the necessary requirements for um, for a healthy recovery. All right. That, it, I'm going to um, I'm gonna have to stop you there, uh, Kevash. Sorry about that. Our time is tight again tonight. But uh, thank you all. Uh, and we'll talk again soon. Good to hear from all of you tonight. Thank Thanks you. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC. And from all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching. I'll see you next time.